Support for this podcast and the following messages comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, proud to support the many Texas businesses who make safety their number one priority in the workplace. More information about Safety Focus Workers' Comp available at WorkSafeTexas.com. Blog Talk Radio. Lucis Trust, a non-profit, non-political, and non-sectarian organization on the roster of the Economic and Social Council of the United Nations and concerned with the establishment of world cooperation and goodwill, presents Inner Sight. With your host, Robert Anderson, he, with Sarah and Dale McKechnie, President and Vice President of Lucis Trust, will discuss philosophical and spiritual topics essential to everyday life. Now here's your host, Robert Anderson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Inner Sight. Today's show is Alice Bailey. Alice Bailey is the founder of Lucis Trust, and she's written 24 volumes of literature. We're going to speak a little bit today about the life of Alice Bailey, and we're going to, well, in essence, it's, it's going to the discussion today is going to relate to her autobiography, and so we're going to explore her life, and and I think it's appropriate to begin with a quote from Alice Bailey. A friend of mine felt that I would really render a service if I could show people how I how I became what I am, from what I was. It might be useful to know how a rabid Christian worker could become a well-known esoteric teacher. People might learn much by discovering how a theologically-minded Bible student could come to the firm conviction that the teachings of the East and of the West must be fused and blended before the true and universal religion for which the world waits could appear on earth. So actually Alice Belly was encouraged to write her autobiography, and I think it's remarkable as I read the autobiography to look at how she transformed, how she went through a personal transformation and ultimately became the person that she finally became that has and she's had such an effect on such large numbers of people. The books of Alice Belly are some of the most profound spiritual and philosophical teachings ever presented to the Western mind. But from what she was in her early life to what she became in later life seems like a sharp contrast. Did her early life experience prepare her her at all for the depth of writing she did in her later life? And what was her early life like? Yes, I think her early experiences that are documented in her autobiography show that all of her life prepared her for what she became, but she was able to take advantage of all that experience and plumb it for its uh, teaching ability. And this is what makes a person like Alice Bailey, I think, an example of a true disciple. Disciple is one of those words that has a lot of um, um, loaded meaning to people, but literally it means learning boy. A disciple is one who learns who grows and evolves through experience and through extracting the meaning in any particular situation. And when you read about the life of Alice Bailey, this is what she did. She was born in 1880 into a an upper-class British family in Victorian England. Um, she was subject to all the privileges and all the limitations of that narrow uh, upper-class British background. Her parents died when she was quite young, and she was raised by relatives, 
spent part of the year in one relative's home and in a, a fairly moderate church orientation and another part of the year with another part of the family who were more uh, fundamentalist in their religion and that had a important conditioning on her. Yeah, she uh, had a she actually was, uh, her childhood was not a happy time for her. It was a very um, disturbing time, as she says, a, a feeling of great dislike of it all, meaning <clears throat> that whole young period of her life, and they were years of great physical comfort and luxury, but they were um, freedom. She had freedom from uh, all the material anxiety, but they were at the same time years of miserable questioning and of disillusionment and of unhappy discovery and loneliness and all of that. In fact, she tried to commit suicide, she said, as a young girl. Right, three times, not just (laughs) three times. (laughs) And it's ironic, she had all of the the fringe benefits of living in a wealthy family, Mm -hmm. too, and uh, one of the things that many of us just fantasize and dream about, and yet that did not bring her happiness at all. No, once she tried to... uh, 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 fall down a flight of stairs, mm-hmm. and that didn't work. And then once she tried to m- bury herself in the sand, and uh, that was uh, distasteful. <laughs> and then she tried drowning herself, and that didn't work. She failed uh, each time because her her instincts to self-preservation was so strong. Yeah, thank goodness. Um, when she was quite young, she um, took up a... Um, uh, path of, uh, I guess you could call it a missionary's path, and when I think she was in her very early 20s or perhaps even earlier, she she joined um, a movement that sent her to India as a, a missionary to the British soldiers stationed in India. This would have been, I suppose, at about the turn of the century, and she had an incredibly uh, expanding experience just being in such a different culture and environment, not only India, but also mixing with a lot of people who were not from her class or background. British soldiers of all classes brought her uh, her first expanded view of the world. And she, yes, but at the same time, she was a, a very... A thoroughly Christian fundamentalist, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. her her main mission in life was to save souls. Bring and religion to the boys. <clears throat> that's think, right, yeah. and uh, she saw many of them in their crude ways as, as sinners, and um, she that's her main goal was to, uh, to bring them away from sin, and she worked in these soldiers' homes, which were, they weren't retirement homes as mm-hmm. such, they were places where Soldiers would come for recreation. They play games. They write letters. And like a USO, don't you think? Yeah, kind a, of. a canteen kind mm-hmm. of service. And they had a, a coffee shop there, and they served meals. So it was quite a busy kind of work. But uh, there was a, always contact with these soldiers, and she had to play thousands of games of checkers, <laughs> as she said, <laughs> and uh, counseling. And she would also give. Um, gospel lectures on the gospels and uh, some of these were her first experiences with uh, public speaking and that's where she really uh, got her experience in public speaking it's interesting to read her autobiography when she tells about her 
her mental orientation, her whole attitude toward life at that time, she's quite amusing in the way she looks back on the narrowness of her viewpoint and mm-hmm. how rigid and prim and proper she was. And yet, at the same time, you have a lot of respect for this young, privileged British woman who went through a great deal of hardship to um, promote her her sincere religious faith to a lot of people who were uh, sent over to India and didn't probably particularly want to be there. So it must have been a wonderfully expanding uh, life experience. And I think she was in India for about eight or nine years before she had to return home due to ill health. She liked India, though. She she loved it. She loved it, she said. And it was part of her training. It was Mm -hmm. a necessary stage in her life to go to India because Mm -hmm. of the just being there and associating with the Indian people. Yeah, the spirituality is just in the air, and uh, she absorbed it. And that's also where she met her first husband, uh, Walter Evans who was a soldier, one of those soldiers that she met. and uh, Not of her class, that which was, was a big problem. That was a big problem because... He was British. He was British, but, but he was of a um, lower class, and she was of the upper class, and in those days, class distinctions were very important. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he was of a middle class. Not, he, you said mm-hmm. lower. Well, yes, yeah. not low, <clears throat> right. Anyway. The working class. Right. And... Um, she eventually, as she said, she became ill and had to be uh, had to go back to Ireland. And she also wanted to marry, and yeah. her family put up quite a bit of resistance to her marrying someone out of her class. And I think they finally agreed that he would attend um, Lane Seminary in Ohio, in the United States, in Cincinnati, yeah. and trained to become an Episcopal minister, which is the Church of England. And so she followed him to the U.S., and they married. And yeah, and that was a way of making him more legitimate in their yeah. eyes. And this is the whole yeah. thing about the class distinctions came in. That, that It was all arranged by uh, her family, really, that he should go study as a become a, uh, an Episcopal minister. And then they were transferred to California. This would have been in the early 1900s. They were transferred to small towns, I think, throughout California, um, San Joaquin Valley and um, the um, uh, area around uh, Monterey Bay. They lived in many different towns, and she, uh, again, took that experience, which had a lot of hardship in it, because she was very lonely and isolated and totally out of her milieu uh, and struggling with a a husband and a growing family. And she found that it expanded her understanding of humanity because she met many people throughout these towns in California who were extremely kind to her and extremely helpful. And she needed that kindness and caring because as it developed, her husband was a... um, an abusive spouse. He beat her physically and quite severely. She gave birth to three daughters in, I think, fairly rapid succession. Her husband was struggling with his career as an Episcopal minister, and he had this hidden private life of being a wife beater. Mm-hmm. And uh, the church temper. terrible yeah. temper. Yeah. And the church knew about it. The authorities yeah. in the church, the bishop, knew about it, and it was an extremely difficult situation. And uh, they wanted Alice to um, 
leave him. She did not want to because it would ruin his career. It was a very difficult situation, and she writes so touchingly of all the help that was given to her by people in very quiet ways to sustain her. But uh, I think the turning point came when he threw her down the stairs, which is interesting because when she was a girl, one of the ways she tried to commit suicide was to throw herself down the stairs. Well, sometimes I think that's a sign that one has really offended one's higher self because later on she was married to someone who tried to do the same thing to her. It must have been some kind of compensation for having Some not type of karma, maybe. Yeah. You know, but then uh, eventually um, they had to separate. Uh, Walter had it to... It just got uh, so bad. It got so bad. She had to go out by and live by herself with her three daughters, so she was essentially a, a, a single mom with three kids. And, uh, and one talent... As a, uh, her upper-class background had prepared her for one way to earn money, which was to make lace. <laughs> <That> <laughs> Not a great deal of demand use, for that. Very useful yeah. talent in, uh, in uh, Southern California at that time, <laughs> in the early turn of the century. But it got worse. I mean, she to make ends meet, she had to uh, find money somehow. She had to go out and work, and she ended she up... She raised chickens? She raised chickens, but she ended, also ended up in a sardine canning factory, and uh, she learned how to pack sardines, one of the best sardine packers around, they said. <laughs> so she could rise to the top no matter where. But even, even though she attempted to commit suicide when she was younger, when she left that uh, noble class, so to speak, she seemed to, um, she seemed to never return to that frame of mind again. She always met every obstacle, no matter what was demanded on her. She, uh, of her, she would uh, work in a sardine mm-hmm. uh, factory or do whatever was necessary. After that, she never gave up on life. And uh, she, from what, what really struck me is that every obstacle and challenge that she went through in life, it, she always had the viewpoint of, well, I'm here f- for a reason. This has to do with my development in some way, my strengthening, perhaps some type of karma. But God has put me, has allowed me to be in this situation for a particular reason that maybe I don't understand at this particular moment, but perhaps it'll fold during my life. I really think a lot of her strength uh, might have come from that. And I, I was really amazed by her ability to be open-minded, too. So many of us find a uh, sense of security by always remaining the same. And it seems to give us all a sense of self-definition and uh, with her, it wasn't that way. One of the unique qualities I found in her book was that she was always open to change. In fact, she writes about that. In the early part of her autobiography, she wrote, I have lived many in- incarnations in one. I've moved forward steadily, but with exceeding difficulty, psychological and material, into an ever-widening field of usefulness. She said, I want to show that in each cycle of experience, I did sincerely try to follow a leading coming from within, and that when I did, it always meant a step forward in understanding and a greater ability, therefore, to help. What I think is interesting about that passage is that she she says that, yes, she progressed forward in understanding and in acceptance of life, but it came at a price with exceeding difficulty. It wasn't easy for her, but there was something within her that drove her forward. And uh, through these severe personal hardships to, um, I suppose, expand her heart and her understanding of humanity, she writes so inspiringly of uh, how 
one barrier after another was broken down in her consciousness by her contact with the whole range of humanity from the soldiers in India to the people in the sardine canning factory to the most ordinary townspeople she realized the depth of goodness and of generosity in people hmm. that she couldn't have achieved if she had stayed in her own social class yeah she she certainly uh, she certainly did and i feel the same way about that uh, by the way if you just tuned in you're listening to inner sight and we're I'm speaking about Alice Bailey. Alice Bailey is the founder of the Lucis Trust organization. It's a worldwide organization. Alice Bailey is the author of 24 volumes of very profound philosophical books. I think you'll find them interesting. There are so many different uh, uh, subjects that she goes into, and a lot of it has to do with uh, coping with life and understanding life, understanding oneself, uh, handling fear, coping with fear, how to deal with fear, coping with anxiety, how to overcome challenges, even ideas such as how to make changes become different and become the higher more or less an alignment of the highest within us, the divine within us. And so if you'd like to order her books, I would really recommend that you start off with the autobiography that we're talking about today. We're speaking about the autobiography of Alice Bailey. And so give us a call at 1866 695 82 that's 1-866-695-8247, or if you need a, uh, an easy way to remember it, is 1-866-NY-LUCIS, L-U-C-I-S. Think of New York LUCIS, 1-866-NY-LUCIS. Our website is www.lucistrust, that's one word, LUCIS Trust. That's www.lucistrust.org. And our email is New York at org. So once again, give us a call at 1-866-695-8247. You're welcome to buy the books uh, at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com or Borders, but you get a 10% discount if you buy the complete set of Alice Bailey books through Lucis Trust. And I like this uh, thought. Sarah mentioned a thought from the Alice Bailey books. Uh, one of the things she says, Alice Bailey, in her writings, one of the things that I seek to bring out in this story is the fact of this inner direction of world affairs and to familiarize more people with the paralleling fact of the existence of those who are responsible, behind the scenes, for the spiritual guidance of humanity and for the task of leading mankind out of darkness into light and from the unreal to the real and from death to immortality. And that really says a lot about the writings of her books. And she, at around age 35, Alice Belly experienced a considerable change in her consciousness. And that excerpt from the book relates to this. What happened and how did this awakening affect the rest of her life? Well, it was an interesting awakening. Um, she, um, it was about age 35, as you said, and that's a pivotal year for a lot of people. It was for me, I'll tell you that. And, uh, because it's, it's the end of, uh, of a certain period of cycles of, uh, seven years each. And, um, so around age 35, she came across what is called theosophy. And uh, she met a, a couple of ladies, uh, elderly ladies, who had uh, worked in theosophy for many, many years. And uh, 
she started going to lectures and meetings about theosophical subjects and something clicked in her consciousness and she really began to awaken to uh, the possibilities that um, things, the the, uh, um, spiritual life was much deeper than she had been uh, believed up to this time. Well, she she mentioned that her her faith that she had had as a girl and young woman, which was a very narrow kind of Christian faith, had not uh, been sufficient for her to cope with what really was the tragedy of her life: a young mother with three very young daughters, a husband who was so abusive that she had been forced to separate from him, no money at all, alone in a foreign country without her family. Can you imagine? the psychological state she must have been in. I mean, she was on her knees. Extreme primordial fear, I would imagine. Uh, yes, <laughs> and for good reason. And uh, she found that her, her, her childhood faith was not enough. And I think it was that, that emptiness within her that made her respond to theosophy. Yes, I, w- I would agree with that. And uh, But it was that... Uh, foundation she had that uh, <clears throat> kept her going and uh, but then as you say it wasn't enough and but then i think she began to look into the whole uh, range of ideas that uh, the phil- philosophy the theosophy of uh, philosophy was providing to the world at that time it was a uh, written you know in the works of h uh, p blavatsky and she uh, encountered these women that had trained with Blavatsky, and uh, so um, that's how she really got started, and she moved into the theosophical work in her life, and that was kind of the beginning of her um, new life, so to speak. Maybe we should um, define very quickly what theosophy is. It's a movement that is part of the ageless wisdom, uh, which is an ancient strain of spiritual teaching that uh, runs really through all the major world religions. Theosophy is the study of this kind of golden thread that uh, permeates world religions. And it's it has three essential principles to it, that there is a plan for the world, a plan held in the mind of God, which humanity must grasp and implement, that there are masters or great, beings who have progressed through the human stage and gone beyond the ordinary stage of humanity to a higher stage of spiritual consciousness and that these masters stay with the world and oversee its evolution. And the third point is the doctrine of karma and rebirth, that every human life is subject to law and to repeated cycles of opportunity for evolution. This is the essence of theosophy, mm-hmm. and when Alice encountered this, it really blasted open her consciousness, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes, uh, tremendously. And uh, she uh, <coughs> um, became involved in the theosophical work and became an, an officer in mm-hmm. the uh, Theosophical Society out there in uh, Southern California, mm-hmm. in uh, Pacific Grove, I think it was. And later she moved, oddly enough, to Hollywood. Hollywood in the early part of the century was a, a center of theosophy in the region called Cretona. And it's while she was working in theosophy, she met her, her second husband, Foster Bailey, which is, of course, where her 
Alice Bailey name comes from, and uh, they were very closely related uh, spiritually, and uh, they they were both uh, officers in the Theosophical Society there in um, uh, Southern California. So that was um, the uh, real focus of her work um, until she uh, then she she began, she met or. <laughs> I don't know how to put this. Now. How are we going to put this? Because uh, she encountered... She was contacted. She was contacted telepathically uh, by a voice. That's the way she described it. And in fact, uh, she says it was in November of 1919 that I made my first contact with this person. Um, she was um, out on the hillside behind her home and just resting and thinking and reflecting, and suddenly she heard what she thought was a clear note of music, which sounded from the sky and through the hills and in me. And then I heard a voice that says, there are some books that I would wish you to write. Would you do that for me, please? And um, so at first she said no, she wouldn't um, do that. But then... He prevailed on her, and later they began to write these books, and they were dictated to her telepathically. That became one of uh, her two projects at which she spent 30 years, the next 30 years, the other project being the establishing of a school for the development of spiritual consciousness leading to a life of service. She established a school in 1922 or 23 called the Arcane School, which still is in existence today. And at the same time, she began writing these books, which amounted to 24 volumes. And uh, it's a remarkable life story of, of service to humanity. She and Foster Bailey moved from California to New York the next year and uh, established their their movement, I guess you could call it, organization isn't the proper word. They established the Lucis Trust and gradually attracted cooperators to them who could work with them, and the work uh, grew to be worldwide uh, by the end of her life in 1949. Yes, and I'd like to say in here just briefly that this uh, contact that she had was not a discarnate being. He was a physical person. Uh, he was a, um, a Tibetan in a, with physical plane duties in uh, Tibet, and uh, he was an abbot in a lamasery. And these books that actually he dictated to her were all done telepathically. They never met physically, but she was here in New York uh, or in the East and uh, the West, and uh, he was um, there in, in the East. And uh, <laughs> or this, something like this that. was carried on <laughs> from a mind-to-mind contact from between two people and physical bodies, and that's a very important thing to kind of get across because he wasn't a dead person; he wasn't some discarnate entity, some spirit, right? No. Well, maybe people, if they want to know more about this work that we've just barely touched on, they can contact us and we'd be glad to send them a packet of information. We certainly will. You can ask for a general package of information where where there are many layers to our organization. And uh, one of the common questions is, are you you a religion? No, we're not. We're more of a philosophical organization. It's a viewpoint of life. It's a way of leading life. So if you'd 
like to order a general package of information, please give us a call at 1-866-NY-LUCIS. Think of New York LUCIS, L-U-C-I-S, or 1-866-695-8247. That's 1-866-695-8247. And what's astounding, too, I might add at, the, at our close here, is that if there are any doubts uh, in the literature, uh, what really dazzled me is as I read the literature, all the statements that she makes in her literature and the predictions that she makes, um, when it was made in the 19, 1910, 1920, so many of them have materialized about scientific discoveries, events of the future, and it's absolutely amazing. In closing, we invite you to ponder on this thought. Goodwill is the touchstone that will transform the world. It is the energy that draws us together in right relationship. There's a world prayer called the Great Invocation. Let's listen for a moment to these powerful words. From the point of light within the mind of God, let light stream forth into human minds. Let light descend on earth. From the point of love within the heart of God, let love stream forth into human hearts. May the coming one return to earth. From the center where the will of God is known, let purpose guide all little human wills, the purpose which the masters know and serve. From the center which we call the human race, let the plan of love and light work out, and may it seal the door where evil dwells. Let light and love and power restore the plan on earth. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, what a great audience. Let's dim the lights for this next one. Nope, too much. Ah, there it is. Got to get things just right. Like Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay, and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget. And now, the mood is right. Wait, the lights are back on again. Trudy, can you? And now it's completely dark. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Morning, sleepy. Guess you want McDonald's for breakfast? Uh, how'd you know? You're sleep humming the McDonald's jingle. I don't know what you're talking about. You just did it. No, I didn't. So, McDonald's? I could use my cafe latte. There's a McDonald's for every morning. Start your morning at McDonald's with a delicious sausage biscuit and savory hash browns for only $1.50. At participating McDonald's for a limited time cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. How do you not hear that?